Welcome to the show, Course Correction. Setting your life's direction and your GPS for success. Leadership, management, marketing, and strategy that works. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jeff Darville. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Darville, and with me today is John Hardy. John is an author and consultant, advisor and strategist. His career included managing his real estate development company, which specialized in building carriage homes in Canada, as well as a consumer foods company. His accounting background helped him develop flow or zero-based auditing, which helped turn around companies. As an auditor with Deloitte & Touche, he audited foreign-owned subsidiaries in Hungary and worked out of London. Today, John and I continue our conversation. We'll discuss Bill Gates and Microsoft, Machiavellianism, evil, and righteousness. What is the role of human agency when playing the game of life and of business? And what are the moral requirements of knowledge? So yeah, the only thing you need to do to destroy a society is introduce the CYA mentality, cover your behind, cover your ass. Exactly. It basically makes it so. And it's just great. It's just like, for instance, the marriage contract. I mean, if I went with the contract that my uh, lawyer suggested to me, well, I mean, it might have worked out because it would have kept me out of a marriage which eventually failed. So one could have <laughs> said that he was right all along. However, there would be no children. And I think that, you know, definitely that would solve the population problem because basically we wouldn't have marriages, we wouldn't have children, and that would just keep us all, you know, very, you know, unhappy but safe. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what Bill and Melinda Gates' marriage uh, arrangement was. I believe that Bezos and Gates both had no, or or the prenuptial agreement was, their, their marriage took place before their billions. I think in Precisely, both. Precisely, yeah. Uh, really? Yeah, Bill and Melinda were married for 27 years, so he was already established, but. Well, his father was, I don't know if you know who his father was, you know, that yeah, it's kind of, I know his mom was involved in a lot of things out as a socialite, but his dad was a businessman out in Seattle, wherever they were. Well, he was a lawyer. Okay. And every, and all these things. And I had a friend who I wouldn't call him his friend. He was a real player, but he was actually made his fortune working with a company that then sold to Microsoft. And the way that Microsoft tended to operate was they gave you an offer you couldn't refuse and uh or else they just take you out right right yeah and that he said that everything worked through his father's law firm you know it's, it's like and then there, i remember meeting a woman once who was an MA specialist etc right. and then it turned out that yes the father's law firm everybody knew that, that was sort of the organization through which all of these machinations went and then i heard from somebody else that the connection to uh, IBM was somehow through his mother, who was on the board of United Way with the head of uh, IBM, and said, well, this is an official story, but, you know, I want you to talk to my boy. <laughs> and then right. they go there. So, I mean, I think that's sort of like that, you know, the Russian doll where you have the official story, then you have the secondary story, and then there's another sort of truth. And the secondary story is the engineered conspiracy theory for those on the quote unquote in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the myth of uh, 
Gates isn't as uh, nothing, you know, it maybe it doesn't compare well to the reality. Um, right. I mean, I, I was reading a New York Times piece just the other day, just yesterday, the day before about his, um, some of the, the, the predatory business practices. I guess the, the author's view was there was the first act of his life, kind of the up and comer, the second act, the dominant business player. The third act was the philanthropist um, extraordinaire and the fourth act may unravel the previous three and expose him for who he really is. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, th this, this New York times article was referencing his, um, you know, potential relationship of some kind with Jeff Jeffrey Epstein, which that name association is going to degrade you very quickly in the public side. The fact that he, um, you know, spoke favorably about Epstein to his wife at some point in, in their life and marriage and other things. Just, you know, we, I, I always think of a, a quote by, you know, from my uh, basketball coach in, in high school, he said, if you fly with the crows, you get shot with the crows. <laughs> whether, whether you're a crow or not, you, you, whom you associate with. And uh, certainly, you know, Bill Gates can choose who he associates with. Um, you know, the Warren Buffett and, uh, his, his, uh, you know, billion dollar pledges aside, um, you know, on his way up, he, he made a lot of enemies and, uh, crushed a lot of people. And it's, it's funny that your business is built around, um, either stealing intellectual property or defending it with lawsuits and taking out competition. So your strategy is real politic, not, um, marketing branding or product development precisely it's not the better it's not the better mousetrap it's not even pretending to be interesting enough right yeah if everyone has to use your mousetrap it doesn't have to be better you know you have that that de facto monopoly which is what he constantly used well uh, yeah and then you still, on, and then it becomes similar to socialism it, yeah how well basically the whole argument of competition you know for enterprise is that you have a marketplace, an active marketplace, which is then driving competition and therefore allowing uh, new uh, new participants with better products to come in, which now keeps raising the bar, and which is you know, which creates the competition and creates the forward momentum. But if you can dominate a market, and you can restrict and you can make it so that if somebody comes in, like an example, data project management uh, software called Project. Right. And it was not by any means the best on, in the market. And they had any number of other, you know, PERT program softwares. It was a pretty simple, basic program. They had much better one. One was a Harvard something, and Harvard was in the name. And then over time, they essentially just eliminated all of the smaller players and they dominated the market. And so you had no choice for PERT software, but to go to them. And then there, it just froze further development because it was not the best. And, and that that was inconsistently uh, the product that he, the, these operating systems that he created were not the best. Right. That the, the computer experts generally hated them. They came out with, with bugs. They were never debugged. They keep coming, uh, driving a new system, which drives yeah. new hardware, forcing Windows, you. Uh, Windows right? 7 were disasters. Just the, the, Precisely. the absolute face plant, you know, almost a, a comic um, like a skateboarder on a rail, you know, tumbling down, just, just a, a comedy of errors that these, that 
attended this web, the um, operating system launch. Um, you know, I think, so the, the counterpoint, if I can play devil's advocate, yeah. not sure. intending to be the devil's advocate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to evil next. <laughs> yeah, we, we'll, we'll save that for a bit, but, but to play the devil's advocate, <laughs> a bit of red hat here. Um, I, I remember hearing the, the, the argument went something like this. Um, you know, Apple had, its own built-in operating system, but it was an ecosystem. So you had to use Apple products. So Steve Jobs was even more controlling of people's ability to develop their own software on right. his systems. So you had Mac versus PC. PC obviously um, was uh, the dominant player in terms of market share because they were more open, if you will, not really open in comparison to Linux and Unix. Unix is more of a server system. I remember trying to do dual boot a laptop in high, in college. I wasn't techie, but I was interested enough yeah. in technology. I wanted to try and play with it. So I created a dual boot on a Windows um, laptop with Linux just to see how it worked because people were talking about this is 1996, 97. And yeah. uh, it, uh, it, just, it, it felt clunky and awkward and, and it made everything more difficult. Like if I was going to use Linux, it wasn't, compatible with the other software I was using. So it was interesting, but I'm not a programmer. So it wasn't uh, feasible in the long term. nor did it help me accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And maybe, you know, it kind of played a little couple games in your mind of, okay, well, what could you do with this? But it, it didn't work out. Even um, my iPhone at one point, I, I um, what they called a jailbroke, an older iPhone, yeah. so that I could load on software that I wanted to. Specifically, I wanted to be able to listen to podcasts with a mono um, Bluetooth headset. They didn't have the dual AirPod, AirBud headsets where you're listening to things yeah. and you can even collect to choose one. I like having one ear available and one ear uh, that I could listen to anywhere I went. This was 2005, 2006, to the, you know, the early days of, of iPhones. So I, I used the jailbreak so I could act, so I could create a program because I knew it was out there and I had found that, that I could use it to um, allow myself to play music on my earbud, which before would only allow phone calls, but I, I right. used specific. And then eventually that feature became available on the regular phones and whether I was using Bluetooth headsets and others, it, it kind of got gobbled up or um, absorbed, you know, kind of assimilated into the Borg of uh, iOS. But, but we're constantly dealing with this idea of like, there's an inferior product, Windows, let's say, that business software runs on whether it's project or word excel and powerpoint and everyone's using that software and the software does enough that the businesses use it it's standard you have a network um, microsoft uh, server or microsoft uh, windows 2000 server the, the the architects of the systems can build around these um, some and again maybe they're not that secure but they can add some fe security features and they feel that the administrators have a sense of control over these systems that they might not have in others and um, you know, is, is the advantage substantial enough? Is it worth it to purchase systems that are standardized, consistent, and predictable versus maybe, you know, the graphic designers who used Mac were great, but it didn't work for businesses. Too expensive, the hardware's too expensive, the software's too, um, you know, unique. So, the, the argument from Windows is it was industrial strength, business class software. I mean, there's another possibility. Exactly. I mean, that's the argument, right? That's the that, argument. That, is, that is what they're saying. They dominate it. 
Another one is that doesn't all of this technology, a lot of it come out of DARPA, like the microchip, the, the World Wide Web, all of it was developed in DARPA. And they, and just let's say, you know, sort of to play with conspiracy theory, not only that, even Facebook, there was some kind of similar program, which then just, you know, kind of went black, or, you know, uh, in DARPA, which was somehow similar to Facebook a couple of years before Facebook comes out. Right? And so what they do is they, they designate the person who will be sort of their man. So let's just say you want to dominate. So, so the, the idea being is you want to dominate without being seen to be dominating because we're not in China, right? Whereas China, they don't, it, they've got the luxury. It doesn't hurt them to be seen as dominating because everybody said, well, this is how it is. And they right. basically- Even they have a front man. They, they have a front right. man at times, whether it was Jack Ma. That's right. They have a front man that they'll pick out there as the, as the CEO, but he's a puppet on a string with the party. And, and everybody knows that. Nobody's pretending otherwise. And, and, and so their system's quite efficient that way that they don't really have to even pretend. Whereas the American system perhaps is a similar system, but they, they, the people need to have a belief in uh, competition, etc. So then what you do is you, you give one company a technological edge you know, and you, you follow a formula, you, you declare it to be some wunderkind who comes up from, you know, with his own, you know, in, you know, good old American ingenuity, etc. is the story, the narrative, right? Yep, the myth. And, and he, he comes along and he uh, beats everybody else by good old hard competition and cleverness and determination and a bit of ruthlessness too, which we don't mind either. And he, he then, which because it supports the competitiveness myth, right? Right. And so then he gets to the top and then, then he all of a sudden finds Jesus and he starts to worry about ethics and this and that, and you and know, how are we going to control this and AIDS research and all these things, right? You want oh, to, all you of, get all to, of these things. You get to refurbish your name, you know, Jeffrey Pfeffer, Pfeffer, who's a, um, a scholar in Stanford. I really like his work on power set of Bill Gates that the seventh rule of power in his book power is people will forgive a lot of those misdeeds over time, because again, with the positions of power, uh, whether it's ruthlessness or uh, predatory pricing and trying to break up the monopoly of Microsoft in, in uh, Congress and others, eventually, you know, whether through philanthropy or others, you start to, you know, revitalize your name and you can you know, recover that. People forgive things over time. It's just one of those, the funny things. Right. And, so, and this is all baked in the cake. They all know this the designers and so they design it, design a certain kind of guy who you love to hate, then you'll hate him, then you'll forgive him, then you'll hate him again, just like Gates, right? Hated, then he was forgiven, now he's hated again. You know, it's just personal. You know, they, they basically create this, they make it so that, oh, oh my goodness, he was fooling around with Epstein. Well, we're gonna hate him again. And right. then in fact, not only that, we're gonna get moral righteous about it because, you know, Melinda just couldn't take it anymore. She right. just only put up with so much. And anyways, you know, she's out there helping the world, saving humanity. And so she was, just, she was just the woman behind the man, behind the plan. And maybe she was more responsible than he was in the same way, maybe, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos' wife um, had some role to play in his success that he wouldn't have been as successful as he was without her is, is maybe a story that the, the media w might want to tell. Precisely. And so what they have is this choice of narratives. 
and they can plug in the narrative and they tend to sort of fall into a few templates, you know, this narrative, that narrative, they're all recognizable, but people never get tired of them. Just like vaudeville, the same jokes, the same yeah. style, this and that, you know, you know, the little bit of, you know, a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer in your pants, the whole clown <laughs> thing, right? you know, Absolutely. it just, it, it always plays. And John, the monarchy serves a similar purpose for sure. the, the, um, paparazzi and these people that I, I am actually very averse to it, but I watch it happen. And it's in the same stories take place, you know, whether it's King Philip or King Andrew, Prince Andrew, Prince, oh, Philip, yeah. Prince Andrew and the Merkel, uh, Meghan Markle and Harry and whatever. And just the, the repetitive mundane inane kind of sickness that comes with following these people. And I'm going, I guess we all celebritize our, country we we need some form of celebrity as gossip or something else to well the something else and you hinted at it before is misdirection it i think i remember it was chomsky was you know always comparing uh trump to a clown and i think in particular it's the rodeo clown right who goes out distracts the bull away from the rider yeah. you know when the when the rider falls and he's, he plays a very important part that he has to distract that uh you know the bull or the well, usually it's the bull um, away from the rider. And that's the value of that clown is to keep us engaged. And so Trump, every time we're just shocked by his craziness, it's like saying, how can that clown be so stupid? Well, he's a clown. That's what he's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, so I think that he definitely had um, clown elements to him trickster elements he would say things off the cuff and and i think i don't know if i've, I've kind of think i'm trying to think if i've ever been to a rodeo rodeo like i i feel like but not to watch a, a clown run around a, a rodeo here um but you know i know what you're describing and i'm thinking to myself like i i think that he was both the rodeo clown and the bull in the china shop in many ways. I think that he is viewed by many Americans as the instrument of their destruction against a system that had forgotten them, middle-class America, working-class Americans. Yes, I mean, to, I'm to just whatever degree he was successful exactly, in- Depending in on which side, you're right, because on to the left, he's the rodeo clown, keeping us busy. To the right, he's the Pied Piper. Again, uh, I think that people, I have a friend who overestimates the loyalty to Donald Trump by many people in America and, and people still honor him. And there's a cult of personality around him. And they, so he views the people who supported Donald Trump as cultists and he as the Pied Piper. And I think that he became people invested in him more than he warranted and he knew that and he played on people's desire to have a champion in the arena because they had been, people believe they have been uh, taken advantage of and disrespected by this political class, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, um, Joe Biden, John Boehner, um, you know, whomever served, uh, you know, uh, in these positions of leadership, the senators, Mitch McConnell's in that category. These, these, sure. these men and women that um, essentially graduated from local usually the route the game for the politician is this we go to harvard or some ivy league school or or potentially a, a southern ivy or a, you know but typically it's an ivy league school so you have to be vetted by the club 
for membership in the club. And again, people aren't sure exactly how that takes place. And it's not just the shoes you wear. It's not just wingtips and certain um, dinner manners that are vetted, but there's some form of pay to play and you work your way into that club. And then you come back to your local area. And if you've played the game well enough and you've worked your way up through the system and paid your dues and earned your stripes, notches on the belt, you have to do certain things at the local level. So it could be as a attorney general and you prosecute certain crimes and don't prosecute other crimes. It could be as a, as a governor, you allow certain things to happen. You, you allow contracts to take place and that gets you into that club. And you could work your way into the Senate majority leader as Mitch, Mitch McConnell did, or, um, um, you know, who else yeah. Henry Hyde, or there's a guy in West Virginia that half the state is named after because he became the, the moneymaker. He became the rainmaker for that entire state. Um, so, oh, that's interesting. So Manchin has a pedigree in the sense that, that, that that's a, a tradition in West Virginia. Absolutely it is. Yeah, West Virginia is big time. You know, it's a, it's a parochial, um, you know, mountain town, but they get there. You know, it's, it's sweet home, uh, you know, oh, whatever it is. That, uh, take me home. That's an interesting topic, Manchin. Okay, yeah. a bit of a segue, but it's, a, it's, it's to this thing. Okay, the, the, you know, the stated narrative is, okay, you know, Manchin always gets up and says predictably, well, we got to try to be bipartisan here. We've got to, you know, include them. You can't just ignore the Republicans. In the meantime, you've got McConnell, who said for 20 years, in fact, all the way back to Gingrich, which has basically said is, we are absolutely sworn to blocking those left-wing, radical, pinko Democrats till we die. Okay, now, those are the two positions, right? And the joke is that obviously there's no resolution with that narrative. Right. At the same time, has that narrative changed for the last 25 years? Many people describe it as the kabuki dance. This is a Japanese yeah. theater where the 30 years or whatever. Yeah. We know exactly what the outcome is and they're supposed to get up there and battle it out. It's WWF is a world wrestling yep. federation. It's a pre-planned um, theater kabuki dance where, you know, they act like someone's going to get hurt or we're going to give a little bit of this and you're going to get a little bit of this and we're horse trading and, and you know, it's backroom deals and smoke filled rooms or it's at the, you know, the yacht clubs or wherever they, you know, go and do their stuff. And I think that, um, yeah, the uh, John McCain served a similar role on the Republican side for being that moderate middleman that was supposed to be able to cross the aisle and right. do deals with the other side. He was once considered a member of the Gang of Eight, I believe, and they were the 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 four and four moderate Republican and Democrats who represented the swing votes in the Senate. Uh, Senate's the the tea kettle or the tea cup and the saucer that's supposed to cool off the heated House of Representatives, the House of Commons rather than the House of Lords. You know, the Senate mirrors the House of right. Lords. The representatives mirror the House of Commons. So we have cooler the, heads prevail. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then then they, they like that position of being the kingmaker. The, not so much the kingmaker, but the deal maker, the the swing votes. And even in even in the um, nine members Supreme Court, you have a couple people who relished, I think Kennedy and uh, now Roberts kind of serves that role at times of being that swing. Yeah. So you you get a lot of power by being the fulcrum point on which these votes turn in a Because everybody else is just spoken for, like the Bader Ginsburg or the, you know, whoever. Yeah. Lillian, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, now it's Sotomayor. And yeah, so, yeah. so that, that position in our politics is, it, it is a known quantity and people tend to serve their 
uh, role. They play their role as assigned in some parts by the, the theater, the script writer, the, the playwright in a sense. You know, you put on the mask and you play these roles and there's people who relish the role of the middleman. But don't we, don't we need that middleman in a way? Is, is the middleman an illusion in the sense that here, exactly, as opposed to Russia or uh, China, um, you know, you have your nine judges, the nine judges will rule, and there's no obligation to create a show of dissent. Quite the opposite, right? Because that's the way, that's the mechanics of their system. Um, they need to have quite the opposite. They need to have unanimity and the appearance of it because anything else within that system would be seen as a problem. Right. And there's the art of compromise that's meant to take. Right. The American system, because it's you know based on you know in any European system, any dem- quasi democratic. Right. The Japanese and, and Chinese system is consensus, right? Unanimity, right. as you described. Where ours is is that that marginal fifty one forty nine vote is still considered legitimate. You know, it's, well, it's considered legitimate, but is it even is it real? In the sense that that's the kabuki that has to be created. So people need to believe that, oh, there's some tension, there's an argument, you have CNN here, you have Fox, they say, how could you say that? How could you say that? They're saying, of course, the same things over and over again, and each time they're shocked at what the other said, fully expecting them to say exactly that. And then you, you, you keep it going, and somehow or other, the cost-benefit for the average individual watching this is, on the one hand, to sort of say, oh, they're saying the same thing, it's a soap opera but passively accept it. And the other one is to actually think, well, if this is all a lie, well, then there's something behind that lie. And then that leads me down a wormhole, right? That leads me into another universe because it leads me. And if this is true and this is true, and it's, it's a progression of thinking, and what's fascinating is the vast majority of humanity, and they know this, is so afraid of that type of thinking, that questioning, that even if all the evidence is there that it's just utter nonsense and fabrication, they'll still tacitly hold on to it because the alternative is psychologically too difficult to engage with. Right. Destabilize their entire world. Yeah, you can see this in interpersonal relationships and marriage and family and, and your parents sure. and others. You know, there's there's a time at which it's more the easy way out is to stop questioning the motives of the people you're dealing with. Or yeah, whatever. I mean, keep the peace. Keep the peace and, and not deal with the big questions. Like, like one of the places, you know, where we left off last time was, you know, on this question of evil, right? And we talk about, you know, someone being bad, some of them. The moment we elevate the conversation, let's say, an example would be the evil. I mean, especially for people who are on the more intellectual side, anything you say after this will be undermined. It will now be that, oh, he's a conspiracy. Oh, he's, he's, he's a holy roller. Or, you know, or he's a fanatic, whatever. To even entertain, for instance, the idea that there might be something that is beyond this sphere an organized intelligence of some kind, at the very minimum, right, that is malevolent, to give it the most general description. And it's omnipresent, yet we don't want to see it. That we've moved to a higher level of abstraction here. When you describe something as evil, I always want to make the point that, one, in order to describe something as good, which people are perfectly happy to do, 
Yes. There is a contrast and not good as in it tastes good, but good as in it is the good, as in the good, the true and the beautiful that Plato referred to. There is a paradigm of goodness. And, and that means goodness is another term that sometimes religious people would use as righteousness, that it is a form of perfection. That is the ultimate good. Yes. And the opposite of that would have to be the ultimate evil. And we see it in the human heart that runs through the heart, as Solzhenitsyn said, you know, that, that, that runs through the heart of every human being, good and evil, the dividing line is there. We can see it in our own lives. Any person who looks at itself in the mirror, intelligent or otherwise, I don't care what your IQ is um, and what your background and education is, or, you know, it's a, there's a sociopathic nature. We talk about um, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and sociopathy and psychopathy as the, as the dark triad in leadership. Narcissism, which you've mentioned, and I've uh, I've reflected mm-hmm. on as well. Machiavellianism, which you've <laughs> written on, and I've reflected in a lot of my other work on leadership as well. But Machiavelli wasn't necessarily recommending um, the cutthroat courses of action that people associate with his name, as much as he was saying this is the way that it's done. I think I think at times you could he he makes prescriptive statements, but I think that in many ways he's pulling back the curtain and revealing something that's going on. So oh. The, the Absolutely. person Machiavellian is the one who's taking the, the term Machiavellian in common usage and column par, column, common parlance has become associated with somebody who says the ends justify the means and whatever it takes for me to get what I want, I'm willing to do. Um, again, that's a, that's not the whole of his thinking. I believe that he actually the, the sociopathy it's, it's is in, someone who doesn't see evil. I want oh, to get those three parts there. The, so the psychopath and, and, engages in evil actions exactly. without remorse. A sociopath lies without remorse a psychopath seeks violence against you without remorse. These people exist in the world. I'm not so. Yes, that that that's that's how goodness and evil are measured in the human psychology. Well, in terms for these people. A, a couple of points here. One, one about Machiavelli. I mean, first of all, what's typical about today's age is that everybody refers to books that they never read. For instance, any number of people refer to 1984, and the vast majority of them haven't bothered to read it. And even if they had, they read it as a kid and they've forgotten most of it anyways. And I was thinking about in the case of Machiavelli, Machiavelli makes a distinction between the virtuous and the criminal. And the point is that the criminal uses the means for their own personal ends. The virtuous uses those means to noble ends. But the point is, it's not the end justifies the means. He doesn't really mean that. He says the means are given. We don't choose the means. They're there. Now you can either use the means this way or that way, like a gun, right? Right. If the sheriff has got the gun, it's one mean. If it's the if it's the robber, it's another. And it's it's the it's the same thing. It's right. And and what's fascinating? Exactly. And the thing is, it's not. He didn't hide it. It's written explicitly that way. And yet, isn't it fascinating how that's been nicely omitted? They turned it into the ends justify the means. And it's interesting because I think one of the problems with Machiavelli's writing, which he didn't anticipate. Now, first of all, he didn't create it for public consumption anyways. So the book wasn't there written for the public, one, so that he can't be blamed for this. And if he knew that he would never have probably consented to it, he would never have written it that way. And I think one thing that he would have known was you give that premise to a narcissist that um, 
the means are the means, but as long as they're noble, what they will then, then do is nicely reverse engineer the whole thing to make it so that whatever they seek is noble. I mean, Saddam Hussein was doing it for the country. All of them are always doing right. it for the sake of, right? Yeah, sure. And, and I think that's one of the problems with this whole Machiavellian thing is that when you give it to a psychopathic individual, right. and the interesting thing is even the psychopath, and this I find fascinating, and I think where we misunderstand that the psychopath needs to see themselves as virtuous, and we, we miss that. And it's interesting, in Dale Carnegie's book, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Sure. The book starts, do you, do you, have you read the book? I have, yeah. He, he right. just, yeah I, I took it as like um, some aphorisms or, you know, like smile and shake hands and ask good questions <laughs> and find out what somebody's about, what they're, you know, like, this, the, you know, just very, you know, um, forward-leaning, salesy type exactly self-talk stuff and, or, it's and, like positive psych stuff and 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 now what i'm about to say will be it will, it will probably blow your mind because there is an the beginning of the book is a sort of an anecdote a vignette of a, a historical event which he doesn't really then explain he just presents it and then moves into the lessons and just about everybody I've ever met, when I've asked them if they recall the beginning of the book, they've forgotten it, right? And, with this, and, and the beginning of the book is, he's a saying that there was this, and it's based on a true story of this guy called, I think it was Machine Gun Kelly, hmm. who went, went on some rampage killing people. And at one point he managed to kill, uh, I think, a cop with his own gun in the 30s. Well, he basically crossed the line with that. At that point, basically, the cops were going to finish him one way or another. So he was holed up with his mall, you know, classic style, like the movies, like Dylan Jerry, with his mall. And there he was. They shot up the place, and it didn't matter what. He was not going to come out. They were going to kill him. Eventually, they shoot up the whole place, and then they go, go in and find him. And so they, they find him, you know, find him in a pool of his blood, but he's still alive. And right next to him, they find a note, a bloodstained note. And on the note is, I guess, his, you know, his last words, or what he assumed would be his last words, which was something to the effect, here lies the kindest heart that ever lived, right? And I remember thinking, Dale Carnegie started off his story, his entire story with that vignette, which is, wow, talk about someone who's calling the game. And he's basically saying that the human being, even the vilest human being, will see themselves as a saint. And that's fascinating. It's <laughs> so cynical, but fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, you can manipulate them essentially by flattery. And so the whole book is really, yeah. when you work it backwards. Right. Interestingly enough, just like the Ten Commandments is really all a kind of an explanation of, of the first commandment the connection to God, and then everything else is an extension of it. Sure. If you actually reverse, look at this book backwards, in a way it's a devilish book because it's a, it's a reverse way to manipulate individuals and it's based on the premise that basically human beings are born fools in the sense that they will always be a sucker for seeing themselves in a positive light. Two responses. One, the, the, the con man um, and uh, 
the salesperson is going to use those to their advantage. So in some sense, he's, he's giving us tools and ammunition to, to use, but that with that power comes responsibility that few will um, accurately or appropriately um, take. The accountability he, he does he does not give us responsibility like he does not in any way imply that we have a responsibility in that book as far as i can remember right fair enough not at all he's and basically it, saying right here here's the rule book go to it boys right yeah you can and i think of uh, a modern iteration of that that i have enjoyed reading as influenced by robert cialdini who, who mm-hmm. uses um psychology impression management all that well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he has some great stories like a, a guy that's selling um, vacuum cleaners walks into a woman's house and he's uh, he's there and he asks her, you know, I, I left uh, some brochures in, the, in my car. Do you mind if I go out and I'll use your key to let myself back in? The, the front door is locked. Now she trusts him with the key. So um, when he comes back, he's now viewed as a trustworthy person and he sells more vacuum cleaners in doing so. That little psychological trick of finding a way to build trust in a small bite-sized chunk that turns into a buffet meal of sales for the salesperson in the same way. Classic con. Yeah, yeah. exactly. These are, and, and so that's the game that, and other people, you know, we can all look at it from the salesperson's perspective. If you flip the lens around from machine gun Kelly's perspective, from the, um, the Mark's perspective, it is their, the human uh, ability of self-rationalization and justification. That is the target of the con man. It is your own self-image, that person's desire for status, prestige, to be liked, to be loved, to be valued, to see their own self-worth in the eyes of another human being, to rationalize bad choices. Cognitive dissonance in a sense, or, or the attempt to avoid cognitive dissonance really, in the sense that once I made a conclusion, I don't want to be wrong. And so that that I, I trust this person. I don't want to see them as untrustworthy because, and actually it's, it's a pain pleasure thing because in the short run, that's going to cause me a lot of pain. Right. Yeah. If I'm the, per- I, it reflects on me. I'm the type of person who can be taken advantage of. Yeah. So I'm the sucker. I play along with the game and become a bigger sucker because I'm calling bets. I shouldn't be calling and before you know it, you're all in and you've allowed yourself to be taken advantage of. And I think that, um, I, I think that most human beings, as we looked at the political side of things, don't, but most people are not observant enough to see the types of things that we're describing. They'll get pieces of it from someone like you, someone like me, other people will mm-hmm. occasionally call the game. And, and it's, it's, a, it's an infrequent refrain on a theme or a song that's in their life. And they'll see it in, and, and some people are street smart. We often refer to these people as, uh, you know, the con man, yeah. the, the person who can avoid a con is street smart because he's judging the character of the people around them and he doesn't get taken advantage of, maybe to his own success, but maybe to his own detriment. What I mean by is that is, is that he, he's unwilling to play the game and therefore operates as an average Joe, but he's street smart enough to not be taken advantage of. And in that there's, there's some, some character there. I think that the, religious instinct is to um, works-based righteousness that I can work my way into heaven. And that instinct for every human being actually leads to hell and damnation. Okay. Explain that. That's very interesting. I mean, religion throughout human history has been man's attempt to craft and fashion a God of his own making, one that he can control in a box, the God of fertility the God of crops, the God of war, the God of luck and fate, 
um, all these gods, the polytheistic pantheon, um, both Zoroastrianism, from Hinduism, the Egyptian gods, from the Greek and Roman and Norse gods, they're all fickle, kind of the, the, the baser elements of humanity. Um, you know, the, the emotional side of man is seen in, in these gods and uh, the creation, that is the elements of creation, the sun, moon, stars, um, seasons, they're, they're represented in these gods as a way for mankind to placate the gods through sacrifice, martyrdom, worship of some kind in order to gain from the gods, that is the, the, the fates of the universe, the cosmos, what they desire themselves. So they're attempting to manipulate gods in that way. And I think that the irony is that, you know, the, it, all religion ties back to this observation that mankind makes that we're here on this planet, this, this object spinning in space, or, you know, again, they, they didn't understand what it was, but we're here. How did we get here? It must've been divine intervention. Therefore gods exist. Therefore I need to gain their favor. And to do so, we work. You know, you know, sort of called neo-Aristotelian approach because you're starting from the material and working backwards, right? And so we start from you know where we are in science. Now we have explanations for these things. Though then they didn't, and therefore they needed them. And they, you know, not having them, they had to create them, right? But we're starting from this premise, which is our present world and our present way of thinking. And you read like Swedenborg or Steiner, or you know, say go to Plato and Pythagoras. I think that what they would argue would be that we are an outer expression of an inner reality. We're outer reality. We're just an echo, you know, which is the cave analogy. And so the, the shadow that is on the cave's wall is not a complete lie. It's based on something. There's something that gave rise to that shadow. But that thing has its origin in a world beyond so that there's no way that we can actually find truth, real truth. And our attempts to find truth within the material are flawed in and of themselves. That would be the Platonic argument, right? Cause and effect, seeking cause and effect both within the material would be basically a violation of that principle because everything emanates from the spiritual to the, uh, the material. Well, so the spiritual has agency. This is the idea that human consciousness, we are rational animals, but we have agency in the world. We cause things to exist in a way that sea might cause a hurricane or the earth might cause an earthquake, but really it's tectonic plates. And as you say, we can explain these things away. So we understand, you know, we start seeing the universe as interconnected, almost chaos theory. You know, the butterfly flaps its wings in one area and things happen, you know, in, in Africa and a typhoon happens in Japan. I mean, there's, there's a strained, uh, causal chain and relationship between events, but humans as rational agents, we can choose to do something that causes other things to happen even more than animal instinct. You know, animals eat, you know, uh, defecate and reproduce as the human animal does. And yet doesn't, does it make a choice? Does an animal choose its mate? Does the animal have a family? Does the animal decide what kind of animal it would like to be? Does the shark decide to murder other animals? Is it, should it be held accountable for those things? No, there's no morality applied to animal life. As we see, no choice to us. We have choices. Okay. I, I, I would, I would express it this way. I mean, and again, um, I wouldn't say devil's advocate because I would say I actually, you know, as weird as it is to say in today's world, I subscribe to this. 
Imagine then that you're, okay, the metaphor would be that God is Mozart and uh, you and I are the, you know, the violin and the oboe player. Now, in playing my violin and you, you know, the, the oboe or vice versa, I'm picturing Peter's. Uh, the, 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 I should actually be more democratic. Yeah. I'm, I'm picturing the Russian uh, play or the opera. Peter's uh, Peter and the Rabbit, and each era, oh, yeah. the duck and the uh, the pig, and every animal has its own tune. Oh, the the animal farm. Yeah, the, okay, no, the, it's Peter's Peter and the Wolf. You know, Peter and the Wolf. Yeah, Sorry, that's William Tell Overture. Yes. <laughs> the the so as, okay so as we the um, the musicians. The greatest thing we can do is to express Mozart through our instrument, right? Now, that gives us actually a wide array of choice on one level, but that choice, all that universe of choice, all falls within a very specific band, which is the notes of Mozart. And then beyond that, the intention behind the notes, which we, the great musicians, if we're great musicians, glean and then express, right? Right. So at our highest creativity, we experience ourselves as almost to be an empty vessel through which Mozart is coming out. Mm -hmm. Now, we have all kinds of choices. We have the choice to play badly. <laughs> we could play Beethoven instead of Mozart. We could do all kinds of things. It's just that, are they you really meaningful choices or are they just stupidities? You know, this is the other question of choice. It's like, there's the right choice. And then there's a thousand stupidities, which we can, you know, we can ennoble them as choice, but are they choice? Right. And, and maybe to that point, maybe there are, there are right choices, but there are many more wrong choices. That is to say, the instrument can play many things well, but many more things poorly. And even those things that they should be playing well, they can play those poorly. So we can play anti-music, we can play bad music, and, and there are many choices within that range. But of the visible spectrum, there's a narrow band of light that is, and, and of that light, there are certain things that we express that are more accurate than others. And I wonder if there's ever a point at which Mozart would allow improvisation as a jazz musician to say, hey, this is a moment where you can just riff on your own. Now, Mozart didn't, but we occasionally do have even that level of freedom. If we've earned the right, so to speak, to play music well, the jazz musician knows the notes and plays it well, and occasionally says, let your own creativity go here. Let's see what you can do with this. Maybe you can write your own music occasionally and write your own piece, an extension of this theme. Exactly, and then the key being, of the sequence. And I was thinking, this is one of the things that I was thinking central to a, the modern approach towards knowledge. In the past, all knowledge was preceded by a moral requirement. You just weren't given knowledge because it was valued. You had to give something for it. And the thing you had to give was some sort of moral thing, such as loyalty or whatever, but you had to create some sort of obligation, a conduct, etc. right? Martial arts were like that, and everything. Right. Yeah. You you don't value right. something that you uh you you cherish it you cherish lightly that which uh, costs you nothing. Precisely. But and then knowledge would have been the 
the absolute highest for those people that, you know, knowledge was huge. And especially in the world where everybody just knew one thing, if you knew the extra thing, that gives you a huge advantage over the others. That's major. And if you then value it, it gives you a reverence. And that's the key reverence, right? Sure. You take reverence out of knowledge and you reduce mastery just down to skill which is like Drucker basic to me, which I cannot stand Drucker. Everybody loves Drucker. I can't stand it because I thought to myself, what, what you've done is when I think about Monet's water lilies, Monet produced, I don't know, thousands of water lilies, but each one different. Right. And if he just had gone to you know school with Drucker, he would have been just that much better because he could, could have made them all the same. <laughs> and it would have been just that much better. Yeah, well, we'd have perfectly standardized water lilies. Think about and was, in a factory, you know, total quality oh, management of water lilies and kaizen water lilies everywhere it would have been it, when near near perfect, um, continuous. Exactly, and the Romans did that with the Greek uh, architecture. They took right. the columns, they didn't worry about perspective. They just pumped out them, and you know, basically, I think up until the year fifteen hundred, there was not a single column made. They had so many columns that they just kept repurposing columns throughout Europe for you know fifteen hundred years. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. My 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 um, the most memorable thing that I believe Drucker wrote to me is in the Effective Executive when he describes managing up, which actually plays like um, a how to win friends and influence people for your boss. <laughs> in some sense, interesting. Yeah, interesting. And it's, you know, and it's, and it's very much sort of the Bible of, um, but it's, it's anti, um, well, I mean, from the outsider's point of view, it is basically blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. So, so your, your thought is, the skill is reduced to repetition, and, 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 you know, purposeful practice produces skill, so mastery can be gained over time, but this the the reverence for the art rather than the science that goes behind the thing that we are exactly makes Uh, all the difference yeah yeah because otherwise it's nlp nlp takes the art out of it it's just you know reproduce these actions and you will be able to actually from the outside in produce the expert yeah, yeah. This is NLP for for those who aren't familiar with the term. Neuro linguistic programming is kind of a, a design way. It's meant to say that certain words and phrases and the way that you say things, the emphasis of certain words, almost like an internal hypnosis, could unlock your unlimited potential, maybe, or something like that. Well, no, that was one aspect of it. But another part of it was was the idea of replication. And the idea is that if you could, if you have an expert and you watch them, observe them. And yeah, then you copy these movements. Yeah, you can eventually create the expert from copying and you know precisely copying, which essentially is perfect if you wanted to make create robots. And so that we we are, the NLP human being is going to be incredibly replaceable with an AI robot. Right. Yeah. I mean, artificial intelligence and uh, these forms of robotic and automation, robotics and automation, will replace uh, or have the potential to replace the most mundane aspects of human existence and as long as you're occupying that space you're in danger i I was just thinking about the nature of our conversation and maybe this is nature to me of what good conversation is we actually had an objective which we didn't reach (laughs) the idea of a good conversation is it's like tai chi too that apparently each movement in tai chi is a movement towards another stasis 
But before you reach the stasis, you move somewhere else. And so you actually never reach the stasis. And so it's like we have approached once again the very point that we were trying to, we were at, <laughs> and we've gone off in another place and then returned back to, to, to where we right. were at the beginning. Right. So if it's the spokes of the wheel, we're built, yes. or I'm trying to think maybe of, an, of the architectural forms and others, the arch, you, you build towards it. But you, the capstone isn't there yet, but we've built multiple sides of this structure. The dome is being created, and eventually it will be the dome, and maybe we'll paint the Sistine Chapel. But, but between our verbal interplay here over the course of our conversations previously leading up to this, we're, we're, we're not yet there to the capstone. And I think that the where we left off in the last episode was reaching towards evil. This episode right. came up again, but the circuitous route that we've taken still is attempting to address it. I think that we're making progress, if you will, towards that end goal. But it is a topic that is maybe underappreciated and, and there's gaps in, in the, I think many, the thinking, the public thinking, I think the public space lacks a full understanding of this. I think that um, the fact that it's uh, taboo is of interest to us, to me personally, um, because I'd rather address the things that people are afraid of saying, because if you're afraid of the dark, there's probably, well, you want to be, th there may be something in there. <laughs> well, one, one question, I mean, one, a question that we could consider for next time. If an individual is not actively struggling, and it's a question that I ask myself, um, if an individual is not actively struggling against evil within themselves, is that a validation of the fact that they have been subsumed by evil? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, I think that that internal struggle, recognizing, again, our own... If it's not there. Avoiding that pride. And yeah, if it's not there, the humility that's required to struggle with yourself... And I, I believe that human life is a life of chosen it's suffering. The, it's the, the journey, not the destination. That is to say, we'll never be fully perfect in this life, but we may be glorified in the next. I think anyone who assumes otherwise, and there's religious orders that have assumed that you could reach holiness of some kind through abstaining from certain practices, which I just, I don't subscribe to that. So I think that you're, the struggle that you're describing is essential to the human life. And I'd like to, to revisit that topic. Mm -hmm.